Hi everyone, welcome back to Incent Report's Pulse Update, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up, what's down, what's working and not working, and generally keep our finger on the pulse of how the internet is holding up. This week, we're discussing what caused dips in performance for ChatGPT, a strange incident for the Spanish branch of the Orange Mobile Network, and a blip for customers of the cloud service provider DigitalOcean. We'll also be taking our first look at the outage trends in 2024 and how the extreme cold weather in some regions is causing problems. I'm Barry Collins and I'll be hosting today with the amazing Mike Hicks, Principal Solutions Analyst at Thousand Eyes. Don't forget that we release this show on all the major podcast platforms, so feel free to give us a follow over at Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. For those of you listening on YouTube, we've included chapter links in the description box below so you can skip ahead to the sections that are most interesting to you. Don't forget to take a moment to like and subscribe either. Right, let's get on with the show. I started by asking Mike about a recent issue he'd spotted with OpenAI's ChatGPT service. Yeah, so there was a, a situation where it started to sort of slow down and, and sort of became unusable for, for a lot of people there. So when that happens, then is is sort of, you know, it, it just becomes declared as an outage. But the thing we can say is when it is that slow, when it is degraded, then we're getting to the front door. So the network connectivity is there. So therefore, you can almost sort of say there's something within the back end that's sort of causing the problem. When a service as popular as ChatGPT experiences performance problems, but it's still usable, isn't it likely to be a load issue? Yeah, absolutely. It's an excellent point. I mean, you know, we're talking about these uh, things with large language models attached to them, so that you know the generative AI, which which have got sort of huge data lakes of information beside that, and then also people coming in to sort of gain that information. So, absolutely, it could be a load issue. But when you get a load issue, essentially what you get is sort of a complete stop. So, what ChatGPT do or OpenAI do, they sort of start to to backflow. So, they say. They work basically on a principle of this statistical multiplexing. It's not quite that, but that's the best way I can describe it, which means that we're basing on not everybody's going to be speaking at the same time. But if we start to get that that time, therefore we're going to slot allocations of bandwidth for each user at each time. And what that effectively means is you almost get a pushback. So when you log on to the application, when you start to run something like ChatGPT, what you'll get is a message that comes back to say, we're unable to process you at this time, come back later. Now that didn't happen in this case. It was just a slow surface. So therefore, again, we can sort of take that out and say it didn't appear to be a low-related issue. Therefore, again, you know, sort of we so you know, join the parts up, do exception reporting. We can get to the front door. We can actually access the service, but we can't. It's, it's running slow. It's, it's sort of laggy, which sort of makes these calls to the back end for whatever it's doing, whether that's doing some search or whether it's actually doing some retrieval. That's where the, the problem probably lay. When it comes to working out if a problem is at the user's end or the applications, most people rely on service status updates. Some companies offer fulsome status updates. Others, like OpenAI in this instance, less so. I asked Mike if there was ever a reason why companies don't always fully explain the cause of an outage. Yeah, there is, and and, and I don't think any of it's ever nefarious. So it really, I think, comes down a lot of the cases then to uh, sort of how much information can we get without compromising our architecture or giving away too much from the back end. Now, that's obviously from um, a competitive perspective, but then you also got to think of some of the security implications as well. If we start to give away these areas there, then somebody can sort of put two and two together so to, to link stuff up. So it kind of goes. And when we have organizations which are fantastic and sort of give the information out, then you have others which will just say, yes, we're aware of the problem. And, and if I'm being totally honest, 
what I think is, is best of all is just to, I mean, it's great to see the information, but it, it, as long as I'm acknowledged there's a problem going on, okay, so then it's, no, it's not me. And then I think ultimately the onus then comes back on to you as the, the customer or the user of that application to be able to have the full visibility into my complete service delivery chain there so I can make that a connection to do so. Okay, well, they've acknowledged it's, it's at their end there, you know, all right. I don't care what it is, but this is what it's actually doing to me. This is how it's impacting my business or my productivity. And therefore, then I can implement plans to either work around or, or to wait till it comes back. Our second outage in this episode involves the Orange Mobile Network in Spain. Here's Mike's explanation of what occurred. So yeah, they, they had this this situation, it was around on January the 4th, where they experienced some sort of degradation to the service. Now, what appeared to have happened was the carrier's RIPE account was breached. Now, this is essentially the um, authority that holds all the IP addresses uh, or the range of IP addresses which they can declare or, or advertise out from there. The reason it's sort of held there is that they're held as the authorization. So their autonomous system number is what's called the ROA, and they're actually sort of tied to that. So this is the the controlling body is RIPE, and their account on RIPE that had the linkage for their route authorization details was compromised and sort of, sort of changed uh, at that point there. What they were then able to do, the hacker, was um, sort of make some changes. So it did a couple of things. So first of all, they started changing the autonomous system they were actually being advertised out from. And then they also sort of started doing some things with some authentication, basically. So these routes were declared invalid. So I think called the uh, RPKI, the uh, Resource Public Key Infrastructure, which is basically, so we have this trusted authority being the ROA saying, okay, I'm allowed to advertise those out. And then on top of that, just to make sure they are the authority one, you have this certificate that gets changed, which is the RPKI stuff from there. And then because there was this mismatch, we saw this situation where some of these became invalid. So sort of the routes went into a black hole. I asked Mike to explain how routing tables work and why it's a big problem when things go wrong with them. Let's take this right back to sort of uh, sort of stage one. Everything you're doing in a routing is based on a next hop basis. And what I mean by that is that I know how to get from here to my office door, right? Beyond that, I don't necessarily, I need, once I get to the office door, I then know how to get to the kitchen. I then know how to get to the front door from those. So it's those steps and routing works the same. So we actually know everything's on a hop by hop basis. Now, if we're taking that onto a large scale, so we have hundreds of thousands of IP addresses, or you have what we call a subnet range within those to, to advertise those prefixes, which is a group of IP addresses underneath. These are all sort of routes to get to those. Now we link those all under an autonomous system and that's tied to an autonomous system number. So rather than taking out all those IP addresses and putting those to a routing table, what happens with BGP is we actually advertise the prefixes based with the subnet masks under an autonomous system. So what it means is then is that I'll advertise this and you say, I know how to get to Mike's house, for example. Now, we're not directly connected in there, but that information goes around. So when you're looking from, from your location, say, okay, I need to get to Mike. And this say, well, oh, here it is. I know how to get to it. And then you have sort of the, the various peers. Well, I know how to get to him. I know how to get to him and I get to him. And you have all those hop by hop sort of linked together. Or in this case, you have all those autonomous systems linked together to sort of pass the information across. What happens then, if you think of that, if you get any one break in that chain, um, or, or, or one of those routes isn't actually validated, shall we say there, then basically we, we can have a couple of things. We can actually have that sort of disappearing into a black hole. So, okay, I know how to get to it, but I don't really know how to get to it. 
you know, so, you know, someone asking for directions and then you're going, yeah, I know how to get there. You go down here to the left of the roundabout. Uh, and when you actually get there, okay, there's actually isn't, there's no roundabout there. I don't know where I'm going now. So you're into a black hole. And this is what happens with the routing tables when we get there. Now, on the other side of that, you have this situation where, um, obviously, this whole thing is done on a base on a system of trusts, which is where these certificates come in. So the ROA itself, you know, okay, that's tied the autonomous system number. I, I have the authority to do these networks out from there. So we have peering arrangements and peering contracts that work with these, these various providers across the internet there, but also it's still done on a base of trust. So, but what we can have is another layer of uh, trust built in, as it were, uh, or, or, or certification based in there or validation to say, okay, we're going to exchange this. So yeah. I know you're allowed to send those out and this matches that RPKI. Therefore, we trust you. So that's, that's the route. Uh, we actually sort of take that. So it's other level of security. Now, the reason that takes place is because, you know, if traffic's going to a black hole, obviously that's, it's not fine, but we know it is. It's, it's traffic sort of degraded there. Uh, and we have no path. We get sort of 100% packet loss. We, we can't move forward. We know what's going on. However, traffic disappearing down a black hole isn't the biggest problem for companies. Now, what becomes more troubling is when we get a hijack. And what I mean by that is somebody actually injects a route. So oh, I know how to get to him. Uh, you can come via me. This is a quick path uh, or this is the best way to get there. And all of a sudden, your traffic can be routed around and sort of taken through a location or, or an area where you probably don't want your traffic to go through. The reason that becomes problematic is because that path is always then it's available, right? So I'm not seeing any indication to it. My application is running. Um, I'm getting to my desired destination in the end anyway. It just might seem a little laggy at times. So this is then why we have this sort of trust built into this RPKI to try and mitigate the effect or the number of times you sort of see these things happening. Now, they still do happen. Sometimes you'll get um, things like route leaks occur, which is where configuration changes or somebody misconfigures a prefix range and it sort of gets sent out and then you know, traffic can be diverted there. There's also situations where you get route leaks where configurations is changed because from an ISP perspective, as traffic passes a peering boundary, there's obviously a charge. There's not too much benevolence going on out there. So as my traffic goes past there, there's a charge as I cross that peering boundary. So in some cases, and we're not saying this is done deliberately, but in some cases it's beneficial to have this traffic passing through my region so we get these ones there. Although this attack was described as hijacking, Mike doesn't think it was a hijack in the conventional sense of the word. I asked him to explain why. As I've just sort of kind of described there, when we talk about hijack, I'm actually hijacking the route. So what I'm actually doing there is I'm actually sort of taking that route and I'm diverting it somewhere else. Sometimes I say by accident, but sometimes it's because you know, I have some, some beneficial. I want to be able to get a look at that traffic that's passing through. Now, what this was, you, you, you could say if I looked at a dictionary term, of the of this, you can say, oh, hijacking is where we take control of something. So what this hacker did in this case is they were able to compromise Orange Spain's RIPE account. So they actually logged on to the system there and they were able to take control of that. So it wasn't the actual BGP or the RPKI that was cause of this outage here. It was a fundamental failure at that base level where they're able to compromise that account to get the information from there and then use that to do that. So that's why we're saying, you know, this isn't a BGP hijacking. This was a hijacking of someone's credentials, which therefore then allow them to gain access to a system. And then they could actually uh, do what they did in terms of changing the uh, ROIs and making these routes invalid and so on. RPKI was designed to guard against such attacks. But in this instance, it appears that compromise of Orange Spain's RIPE account was the culprit. 
I put it to Mike that this proves the old adage that when it comes to security, you're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. You, you are, and I'll probably just qualify that. I mean, you, you're sort of weakest link in the chain is someone sticking a password to the front of the front of the desk <laughs> and you sort of get in there. So so if we were being really strict here, RPKI did its job, right? So we had invalid routes here. We we did we had a mismatch between ROA and the actual prefix they're allowed to send. So you could argue that RPKI did its job at this moment there. But absolutely, to your point, was only as strong as our weakest link. I said, then ultimately, this comes down to sort of there, there, there may be some human element involved. And, you know, and this, this really, if we sort of span this right out, this goes across even to an outage point of view. So we're often talking about, yeah, we can put these things in place, we have these there, but all of your processes at some point have to include human. Even to the level of automation you have, there's ultimately somebody sort of checking into that. So these would always be, there will always be sort of some uh, potential fallibility within these systems. So, you know, the whole point of this is that as much visibility I have and how quickly I can catch these things, the, the, the better. Cloud services provider DigitalOcean is the third company now round up. I asked Mike what caused its disruption. So yeah, so so DigitalOcean had these sort of issues again. It was uh, described as a major network issue. Um, it occurred on January the tenth. We were sort of looking around twenty fifteen to twenty one forty five UTC. So this was a fairly lengthy one in terms of sort of time. You're looking at sort of thirty minutes there. But again, sort of what what we saw or what we're able to observe here was the internet caused disruptions to services. But this was worldwide. These was a certain amount of services, and they had sort of these things called droplets and droplet services, which essentially are virtual infrastructure and services that run on that virtual infrastructure themselves. And it was access to those that were impacted. Now, because we're looking at this on a global basis, and it affected only these droplets and droplet services. What we can actually assume or we can make some sort of a best guess assumption is that it was the connectivity into that back end system. So again, I can get to the front door. I can get to all my DigitalOcean services that I require with the exception of these runs running on the droplets and the droplet services there. So it would have been some sort of distribution layer, some load balancing type of thing, which is probably the main cause. And we say that because we're looking at an aggregating point. So again, we've talked about this in previous podcasts where we have these single points of aggregation where sort of all the traffic flows into or, or something's reliant on. So it might be in something like a, a central indexing from a search facility or something like that, but it's something where we all come into or you know, some form of authentication where I need to, everything needs to be authenticated there. So the fact then you have this global disruption, you can sort of make some conclusions that, okay, this was some commonality across there. And because it impacted all these areas there, then we look for some sort of distribution going into these services. It might have been a significant disruption, but DigitalOcean did a great job of explaining what went wrong with regular status updates to customers during the outage. Did that get Mike's seal of approval? Yeah, absolutely. Again, this comes down to, so they're, they're, they're putting out all these details, they're saying exactly what's happening, and they're going into these, uh, these processes there. But again, to our earlier point, they're giving us enough information to say, yep, something's happening here, we're aware of it without giving away, you know, sort of the architectural design or what's going on from there. And this is this fine balance you sort of take, you know, um, 
I was going to say, we're all, we're all finding something's broken. We're not, you know, and certainly now in this day and age, we sort of get very frustrated. We want instant gratification. We want stuff sort of delivered straight away. But if we're informed something's going on, then you can take steps around there. You, you are aware. And so the more information you can actually give, the better it is, again, without compromising yourselves of going, going across there. And there's good reasons people do it. There's nothing more frustrating than, yep, we're working on it, we're working on it, so no resolution time. But again, even if those updates are regular, then that's fine. So we've reached by the numbers, the part of the show where it's time to delve into the global outage trends we've seen over the past fortnight. And if you're as much of a fan of the outage numbers as Mike is, do check out the special 2023 trends podcast we put out last week. But back in 2024, has Mike spotted any trends in the first batch of New Year data? Yeah, this is my favourite part, Barry. I love looking at the numbers. I'm a man of patterns. Let's uh, it's, it's see that. Very simple. Look at these pictures. So this is kind of interesting when we start to see what's happening here. So, you know, again, we're looking at this. This is the first time this year we're actually looking at how the outage sort of trended. And if we look at the pattern, well, we started to see this progression. So as we came out of that holiday period, sort of from the 25th to the 31st, we started to see this increase. So coming in or looking at sort of total global outages, we initially sort of see this uh, this rise around 36%. Now, so this, this big increase. So we go from 90 to 122 observed outages from there. And again, this trend carries up. If we go into the, this, uh, the last week, we were looking at sort of January the 8th, January the 14th. And then we sort of start to see uh, some of, again, it's sort of 24% increase. So we sort of see this, this increase coming up from there on these total global outages. And this is, this is something we see year over year. So, you know, again, very old. We've been doing this sort of many years. We're looking at these numbers coming from there. And I can go back and look at the numbers and I see a very similar pattern. I start to come out of this holiday period and it starts to rise. Now, we see exactly the same pattern if I look at US-centric outages. And that means the sort of the outages that are sort of within the US themselves. So they originate from a US infrastructure. Again, I start to see this rise. So again, look, coming out from that December 25th to 31st week, so that first week from a work perspective, that's when I see my biggest increase. So I go from 32 to 58 observed outages, which is an 81% increase. So, you know, sort of getting close to double. Uh, and again, then it did increase this following week, but it was less of an increase. I sort of saw 9% increase. I went into this second week there. The sharp increase in the US-related outages immediately after the holidays is symptomatic of the US returning to work earlier than the rest of the world after the festive break. So I can actually go and look at the nature of outages. When I say that, I'm looking at time of day they occurred and sort of where they occurred sort of in business business hours. When I look at those US outages. Again, we sort of see this increase. They're occurring outside of hours. So I'd say they're maintenance work. We do know historically that you know, with the, the US holiday period essentially starting a little bit early with sort of Thanksgiving from there, then you know, by the time we get to this first week of January, they, they tend to return to work quicker. And then again, I start to see this big increase in the rest of the outages. Well, I see my increasing uh, returns this second week where, you know, again, I know I'm in the APAC region anyway, so I know that we sort of went back on the 8th um, and then I can see that. Now, it's not to say that people aren't working these other times, but essentially what you like to do is you, you, you sort of operate these skeleton crews. Now, there will be work that gets done during this period of time, but really what we're doing is, is we're not essentially keeping the lights on, but we're keeping things going around from there. You don't want to do too much disruption during this time in case something does go wrong. So we sort of see that reflected in these uh, these outage patterns. In this regard, the internet industry is different from other industries, such as transport, where maintenance work is often performed during the Christmas break to minimise disruption to passengers during quieter periods. Why does Mike think the internet industry tends to ease off on maintenance during the festive break? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a really interesting point. And, it, and I don't know whether it's essentially changed over the years, but, but we've certainly now got this reliance on the internet as our, as our backbone. So it plays this dual role. So when we're in these periods, we might be switching our, our main focus onto entertainment stuff, which is served over the internet, but it is carrying our business critical stuff. So we're carrying, you know, sort of utility traffic, all our banking information, everything's there. So everyone's though this period of time, I don't want to break it because I'm going to have to call in my staff to actually sort of do this resolution. So yeah, it, it takes a different approach to how you actually uh, attack that. But yeah, it's an inter- interesting um, observation. Finally, we talked about a factor that has been a global talking point at the start of 2024, the weather. Many areas have seen deep winter freezes at the start of the new year. Has that impacted the outage numbers? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And uh, so a lot of this is anecdotal, but you can sort of, sort of tie it two together. So, you know, currently in North America, they're having some freezing conditions. And as we talked about before we started, Barry, so are you in the, uh, in the UK there. And, and it's interesting that we, we, what we're starting to see, and this comes a little bit back to sort of people reporting stuff coming out, which is why I say it's sort of anecdotal. But what we're seeing is some outages, you can actually tie it down to sort of extreme weather conditions, as well as in specific areas, uh, obviously at the, at the time of day. And, and then we can start to see sort of put two and two together through some information and start to see these situations where some of the facilities are having essentially issues with a chiller because the weathers and the chillers are sort of the stuff that actually wants to cool down the, the data center itself. Now, because, um, we're having such severe weather conditions, you know, sort of, you know, sort of real minus temperatures coming from there. The, the chillers are effectively sort of struggling to keep up with, with the, the, the environments there. So, you know, they might be sort of getting blocked up. And again, I don't know for certain, but there, there's situations occurring where the chillers are struggling uh, to sort of work. Now, they're not failing, but what's happening is the temperature inside these data centers is actually starting to increase. And when they when you get in, rising temperatures increase, you start to get a failure of infrastructure. So we haven't seen mass failures. So we haven't seen some like we, we saw in the podcast last year where we lost a whole data center uh, because of a power outage or a chiller fell, which caused a power outage or we shut things down. We're seeing sort of partial failures. So we're starting to see some parts of that data center be shut down, uh, you know, to, to sort of keep the heat levels lower. You know, there's not many, too many windows you can actually open up in some of these data centers. <laughs> so we can't sort of let the, the, the cool in there. And we can pick these up. We sort of see these little echoes. You sort of see the packet loss. But again, to the point we were talking about previously is that What's occurring there, because we're shutting these down, is that we do have this resilience. So we are able to almost route around this traffic. You know, we're not taking out every data center of that the, these providers happen to be in. Um, you know, there's sort of it's in certain areas there, and then sort of traffic can be routed around. Now, in some cases, that will have an effect on the local environments, which is where we've been able to tie the two together. So if I'm locally coming through there, that's my effect my first point and therefore I can have some sort of issues in actually sort of connectivity and we've seen that say anecdotally I've seen some reports around specific areas in the US where they've gone on and sort of tied it back to this data center situation itself but typically what we're seeing is the resilience of the internet is sort of being able to maintain around there but it's an interesting take it's interesting that we start to see these external factors that have to sort of be considered and built into how we um, design and understand our service delivery Ironic, isn't it, that no matter whether the weather is extremely cold or extremely warm, it's data centre cooling that's affected. Exactly. And they've been going through big upgrades of chillers and these chillers are sort of very well designed. But yeah, it's these two extremes. And I guess really, if you're thinking about, um, yeah, we talked about in a previous podcast around 
disaster recovery planning there. There's only so much you can do. You know, it's not becomes cost effective for me to put a thousand chillers around just in case we get those five days over 50 degrees or 41 degrees or whatever it is from that that we can't cope. So you have to do sort of the, the, the best situation to almost cope for the medium. But yeah, it is interesting that the high and the lows, you, you can, uh, you can see these different, these impacts. And that's our show. Please like and subscribe. We really appreciate it. And not only does this ensure you're in the know when a new episode's published, but it also helps us shape the show for you. And for more insights on recent trends and some of 2023's most notable outages, join us for our Top Outages of 2023 webinar. We will walk you through how these outages unfolded and share tips to help you minimise the impact of future disruptions. You can register now at the link in the description box below. Don't forget you can follow us on x at Thousand Eyes or send questions or feedback to internetreport at thousandeyes.com. Until next time, goodbye.